Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hack. We're going in-house today because we've got a really cool episode for you and a fabulous guest who you may have heard of. Alex, who have we got with us? If you haven't, then you've either been asleep for the whole of lockdown or you're an idiot because we have with us Andy Locke, who is frequently on History Hat, especially down the pub. Uh, Lockie, as he is known colloquially um, when we're all a bit drunk, is a World War One historian, PhD student, battlefield guide, tour guide in London, uh, basically ed- educator extraordinaire. I think we should get that put on a T-shirt. What do you reckon, Lockie? Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah, big T-shirt, please. Um, yeah, nice to be nice to be here, sober, <laughs> I guess. Um, <laughs> and actually talking about history instead of dicking around. This is weird. I know, right? Uh, and <laughs> nice history as well. This is this is this is close to my heart stuff. Um, yeah. Fully, fully in your wheelhouse today, because today is the 9th of April. So we are going to commemorate uh, the battle that makes Lockie tick, basically, because it's the basis of a lot of the work he's doing. Uh, and it will become very quickly clear while there's a Canadian hanging around in the room. Uh, he's <laughs> expecting to be the centre of attention throughout this. Uh, Lockie, start us at the beginning. Concept. Why is there an offensive at Arras in April 1917? Okay, so it's it's moving things on after the Somme. Essentially, there's there was, um, and people will know if they know two battles in in the First World War, it, it, the Somme will be one, and and the Third Ypres campaign or the Passchendaele campaign will, will be the other one. This one kind of sits in between the two, and I guess it's um, it's the product of a man with a plan. First of all, a, a French man. Uh, with a plan, but also kind of the British army um, needing to to get on the front foot uh, again and not waste all the kind of all the, all the build up of force and everything that they learnt on the Somme. They wanted to get stuck into things straight away in in spring of 1917. So so Arras became it. You mentioned the Frenchman with a plan. Who was the Frenchman with the plan? <laughs> oh, uh, Nivelle. Well, yeah. Here's the thing. He he comes out the Verdun side of things because yeah, we got the the British bashing away uh, alongside the French on the Somme. Concurrently, you've got the French in this slogathon all the way through 1916 at Verdun. Um, initially, it doesn't go well for them, but in the second half of 1916, they really start pushing back against the Germans. And one man who, who whose kind of background was an artillery commander, Robert Nivelle, rose to prominence. Um, 
using some fairly thick artillery fire uh, and creeping barrages to to drive the Germans back out of their uh, games in the first half of the year. Uh, he's a very charismatic guy, actually, Nivelle. Um, people liked him, uh, including the British Prime Minister um, at uh, at the end of 1916, <laughs> beginning of 1917. Um, he didn't be just. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I think Nivelle kind of seduces Lloyd George a little bit. Um, he definitely shows a bit of leg. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not. I'm sure Lloyd George is not easy, easily seduced by a bit of leg, is he? Um, Scandalous. Anywho, yeah. So uh, Nivelle essentially says, right, got it, nailed it, cracked it. I know how to beat the Germans. Here's what we're going to do. Um, what I want is a big British attack somewhere, let's say, around about the join of the Wotan line and the Siegfried line, some, somewhere like that. Oh, Arras. There it is. There's also a bit of a logistics base there. Good, good to work from. Um, plus, there's some nice kind of tactical objectives, which would be good to take around there. If the British launch a big attack around there, that'll really interest the Germans. That'll drag a load of Germans uh, over off into that area. So they're not defending the uh, French sector quite so strongly. And then pow, 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 three big, strong French attacks are going to punch through. And in 48 hours, Nivelle's offensive can break through German lines and then we're on the road to victory. I'd stake my reputation on it, says Nivelle. Uh, and if we don't break through in 48 hours, you can bin me, sack me, call off the offensive, do what you like. And hilariously, if, so if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, this sounds like a good idea, um, you're an idiot, but... Uh, there were many idiots in the French government that bought it. Well, they were. I mean, it's it's, it's the kind of success at Verdun that that that, that gives him the credibility, uh, I guess. Plus, you know, the, the way the Somme turned into just a bash fest with no clear game meant that um, they're, they're looking for someone to kind of take over from Joffre, uh, who had been at the head of the French army um, previously. He definitely, um, he definitely told him what he wanted to hear, didn't he? But I mean, we could, we could waffle on about Nivelle and his madness, his madness, um, and the flaws in his plan, um, that are revealed wholesale when the French do their part of the attack, uh, for two episodes in itself. We could do a two part special, but we're not here today. You definitely wanted to talk about the British side of things, didn't you? So the British attack at Arras is based on, um, occupying the Germans and distracting the Germans before Nivelle starts. That's essentially why it exists. But tell us, how did they start planning for it? Okay, so there's a huge amount of pain. I mean, essentially, if you think about all the things that went wrong on the opening day of the Somme offensive, where the artillery fire isn't thick enough, isn't accurate enough, they don't pay enough attention to counter-battery fire, which is where they shoot at the, the enemy's artillery. Um, and that's crucial because, you know, it depends on the battle a little bit, but artillery is the big killer in the war. You know, it'll, it'll account for somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of all battlefield casualties. So this counter battery role is crucial. They've made big developments in firstly finding um, enemy artillery using uh, new techniques. And these get sort of chatted about quite a lot in, in the books, you know, sound ranging and flash spotting. The, the the idea that you can spot a flash of a gun and then use kind of microphones to pick up the reports, the sounds of the of the guns firing, the, the, the shell moving through the air, and then, then it, the, actually the impact of it. And you can calculate where these guns are. They got pretty sick at that, actually, the uh, the BEF by April of 1917, to the point where they identified around about 85% of German gun batteries and could put all of those uh, under fire. There were improvements in infantry fighting uh, through the Somme offensive 
uh, as well. Just generally more light machine guns, getting better with those light machine guns, um, better use of mortars. So the support weapons for the infantry, uh, it, they, they're getting more adept at using them and they're becoming more numerous uh, on the battlefield as well. The, the BEF's doing a, a decent job of thinning the, the battlefield out a little bit as well, not just all charging off in big waves you, you know, with, a, with an officer with a stick shouting, come on, chaps follow me like they may have done in 1915 and it's actually more the NCOs uh, taking them forward they're more experienced from from what they've been doing the previous year as well and so there's a general skill level raise across all branches of of the, the British army there's also the cadre system is as well that now they leave a, a section of men at the back so that they don't completely destroy a unit yeah, you don't have total pulverization. That works in theory on this one occasion at Arath when it, it didn't. And, and, and actually, I think the, 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 the Newfoundland uh, regiment um, on the 14th of April, I think they were left with just about their, their battalion HQ. And that's, that's really about it uh, after one attack. So um, it's not perfect. Uh, again, as we will explore. But I mean, the, the, the planning is immense. Uh, they're also, in terms of artillery techniques, uh, they're using things like a creeping barrage as a kind of standard um, method of, of fighting. Uh, and that's a, that's a barrage which drops um, first on the German well, outpost lines potentially and covers their front lines and then advances steadily forward uh, with the infantry behind it. One of the problems with the first day of the Somme was that they dropped the bombardment on the German first line. And then the infantry moved in, the artillery picked up and, and, and shelled the second line. But there's too much of a gap between the lifting of the artillery and the infantry hitting it up. Enough time for the Germans to get their machine guns out. That wouldn't happen. The infantry would be close up behind this barrage, which crept forward steadily. And that was standard procedure. Plus, the number of guns they had was pretty stunning. And not just number of guns. I mean, for, for, again, I keep comparing it with the Somme, but it's just sort of interesting from that point of view of progress. If they've got 1,500 guns firing um, on the opening day of the Somme offensive, well, this time they've ramped it up to about 2,200. But the main difference is the number of heavy guns. All right. If they've got 400 or so heavy guns, that's like a, a six-inch caliber or higher. Um, 400 or so firing for the Somme. You know, for Arras, they've got about 950, and that's a big, big difference in firepower. What's the length of the front as well? It's, it's a little bit less uh, for Arras. So, you know, it's, it's a more concentrate bombardment anyway, even without the increase uh, in firepower. Um, so all of this is, is pretty good. They're fighting against German 6th Army, um, uh, led by a man called von Falkenhausen. Um, whose name I promise I haven't just made up as just a German sounding name. He's <laughs> a real person. Uh, and they, 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 yeah, they weren't, they weren't, certainly weren't terrible, but they hadn't really kind of moved with the times in terms of where German defensive doctrine was going either, which is kind of thin out the front lines and actually hold the bulk of your strength in, in reserve. Um, so when this immense British artillery bombardment gets going, they've got two men, too many men too far forward and they suffer very heavily uh, from this artillery bombardment. Just on the bombardment, I remember reading a long time ago in, in Barrison's book about Bimmy that they actually looked at what each gun would fire so that you wouldn't have too many guns fa falling short. Is that true? Did they start looking at 
what each gun could do scientifically, or was it just a standard right? Everybody shoot over there sort of thing. No, no, no. It, it very much is. You got you've got the starting the process of, uh, and by the end of the year, by the end of 1917, they've really got this down to a dark art, looking at the you know, the level of wear on the gun and atmospheric conditions. At this stage, they still had to fire pre-ranging shots. Okay, which is the the sense that you know you you got you got artillery observers with binoculars, um, and uh, it'll be boom. No, you're too far left. Come right a bit. Boom. No, that's too far over. Boom. No, you've shot over the top. Boom. No, you you drop short. And after a bit of firing, you get it right. The trouble is, you you kind of lose the element of surprise with that. Um, and you know, if you're the German and you you've you've seen a shell drop to your left and drop to your right and drop behind you and drop in front of you, you think oh. Not sure I want to be here anymore. Let's let's move the important stuff out of the way. But just the sheer weight of fire meant that surprise wasn't that much of an issue with that with that opening stage. I mean, it's actually quite a logical place to attack um, Arras and Vimy because you've got that objective of Vimy Ridge, which the French had fought very hard for in 1915, uh, for example, taking it but losing it again. Um, but you've also got the join of the, the main kind of German defensive lines that they'd built through the second half of 1916 and, and early part of 1917, the, what we call the Hindenburg line, really. But actually, the Germans had a number of names for the different parts of it. So it's, 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 it's a logical place to attack. Surprise isn't really a factor, but that weight of bombardment, the planning of it is, is going to override that. And, and and actually it did. Right. Then the Germans throw a massive spanner in the works, don't they, by retreating to the Hindenburg line beginning at the end of February. Okay, yeah, so that's it. Um the this scuppered Nivelle's plans more than it scuppered the British, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest, because um it's only really on the kind of southern part of the Arras battlefield where actually there's any kind of withdrawal. But essentially where the French had planned to attack well, yeah, in, it, it starts in February on the kind of Somme front, uh, where they, where they pull back to their kind of next defensive lines. And that sort of sets the, the British at least going, Oh, hang on a minute. What, what are they up to? Are they, are they going to, are they going to pull back to these lines that we've photographed and, and seen being built? And then in, in mid March, um, it, that's when they start making their big withdrawal across a huge front. Uh, essentially, the, there was a big bulge in the lines. Um, that the Germans had, had captured in, in 1914, really, that the, the, the British and French offences hadn't been able to push them out of. Well, the Germans pulled back themselves to shorten their line, free up a load of divisions, and set themselves up around this epic set of defences with a load of concrete, tonnes of incredibly thick barbed wire, uh, and effectively said, come us. I'm just going to throw in a reasonably noob question, which isn't on the list, and that's the concrete question. The, the oh, Germans we were go down the bunker porn aficionados. It, it's it's just that <laughs> thing that you get asked a lot: is why were the German trenches concrete and ours made of mud? That because they yeah, didn't want to go anywhere, and we did. Yeah, it kind of is that really. Um, what the what the fighting of 1916, I guess particularly um, the, the latter part of, of 1916 had kind of highlighted, was if the Allies want to pulverise a trench line, they can. Okay, that's kind of what we have with the, the 14th of July Bazentan Ridge. 
uh, attack, for example, where the British concentrate their artillery firepower, blast this trench line out, and and are able to advance. Okay, that's what the British can do in July. So what the Germans are going to do is, is make a lot more use of concreted strong points. Okay, they don't concrete the entire trench because that'd be just too much. It's too 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 much in the way of resources put into it. But actually, kind of strong point defence. Um, and you know, concreted bunkers become a lot more prevalent. And, and, and I guess we think of it at least as much in Flanders as we do in France, um, where if you, if you do a tour around the kind of Passchendaele battlefield, you'll see the, the kind of almost like the cottage style of, of, of bunker. These these are raised above the ground because of the because of the way the ground works in um, <clears throat> in Flanders is very sort of prone to flooding. Whereas, you know, in the Hindenburg line, you're talking about deep mined uh, bunkers that ne- don't necessarily le- need to be concreted out because they're down underground. Now, this needs a whole new style of infantry fighting to, to counter it. It also means that there's more protection for the Germans. They're fighting a defensive battle at this stage. I mean, the, the, the British and French do work on their trenches. They don't like living in total hovels. But the kind of the way it works is especially for the British, they're much better at kind of cycling the units out of the trenches, particularly the frontline trenches. They're not in there for more than sort of a couple of days at a time, so they're not getting comfy in the same way that the Germans are. Also, the Germans aren't on the offensive at this time, so they don't need the amount of concrete, etc., in there. Right, does that answer the question? It, yeah, it does. I'm just dragging you guys back from your your deep dive World War One stuff that just leaves all the rest of us terribly behind. right so the the question i was supposed to ask really was let's talk about the 9th of april itself um why does it work because this on this day it's it is actually a success which is one of those rare beautiful things yeah i mean if you're going to take sort of the the british kind of front line and and think about it topographically start inventing words um you've got Three British armies that are working uh, on this. Uh, maybe that's something that people need to know. The British army by this time is blooming big. Uh, you know, split into you know, five different armies, each under their own army commanders and each of those with their own personalities uh, as well. The kind of northern end of the Arras battlefield is covered by First Army. <clears throat> uh, a man called Henry Horn in charge of that, but actually it's, it's, it's got one core. Uh, of his uh, attacking, and that's the Canadian Corps under Julian Bing. Um, they do have a, a, a brigade from British 5th Division on their north flank as well, but um, it, it's really the Canadian Corps' show, uh, Vimy Ridge. And if we kind of also draw a kind of success chart, it's kind of the most success at the northern end of the battlefield, and then it kind of steadily kind of tails away to on the southern end of the battlefield where you've got 7 Corps. They, they do make some gains, but it's quite hard work. Um, down there. Um, uh, up on Vini Ridge, they've, I, I want to say they've got most of an army's worth of artillery firing on a core front. And that's, <laughs> that's quite stunning. Vini Ridge, it's actually a really difficult place for the Germans to defend in the style that they're, that they're moving on to, which is kind of a lightly held front and then kind of the main strength held back. Because Vimy Ridge, if you, if you kind of look at it from the, the British or Canadian perspective, it slopes up really quite gently to a point where it absolutely drops off. It's almost like a cliff edge uh, facing towards the east and then pancake flat ground beyond it. Um, so where the Germans would want to kind of retreat and then counterattack, 
they can't do it because they've got this massive great cliff. So basically they have to hold the entire ridge in strength, which means those units get pounded by artillery. Those that survive, it's fight to the death stuff against the Canadians uh, when their four divisions um, come over the top. And it's not a pushover at all, Vimy Ridge. Um, you know, the, there are dedicated Germans who do sell their lives incredibly dearly. But the Canadians by this stage are no mugs uh, either. So some hard fighting. And actually, they, they clear most of the ridge um, on that first day, the 9th of April. And in, in the days that follow, they get the rest of it. Uh, done and that's a that's a serious achievement worthy of a big memorial and so that's where the big canadian memorial is on the west happy Broadway. now bony yeah i you know it's it's i remember the shock of walking up it and then suddenly the hill's not there anymore and it just drops straight away and you're looking out over miles and miles and miles of france so it's it's a very interesting place with a very lovely memorial on the top of it um and but yeah i'm 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 happy we've got a mention you can, you can move on there. it's, it's, well, it, it's just grow, growing there, up by the way yeah well you know it's just growing up in canada you'd think that was the only only thing really because that's our foundation story that's where so yeah. many people say canada starts well it's the first time all the provinces fight together isn't it yeah, you got all four divisions fighting side by side, and that's the that's the kind of significance of it, really. And then the Newfoundlanders, who like to remind you, they weren't part of Canada at that time. But yeah, no, they, that always hammers your word count. I've found writing books when you have to explain that at every turn. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to the, we'll get to the Newfies in a bit if we've got time, because they they were at the Arras battlefield. They're only they're only on the Western Front in battalion strength, uh, slightly under strength battalion. I mean, it's not. Not very populous, actually, <laughs> at yeah. this time, Newfoundland. And I don't think that's changed a great deal. And it doesn't help they get practically wiped out twice in a year. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, we've talked about Canada and Newfoundland. <laughs> well, this, this has Canada. been great, thanks. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, though, it, it's equally, is it equally as successful for the British? It's even better, actually, in stages. Like, if you, only you didn't want to hear that. <laughs> the next... Well, the next corps, you know, from the kind of southern end of, of Vimy Ridge, um, uh, the next corps down is, is Charles Ferguson's 17 Corps. Uh, and he's got some, I want to say some famous units in, in line. He's got the 51st Highland Division uh, working with them. They're, they're pretty big deal. Um, 34th Division, we tend not to shout about, but, you know, they're competent, certainly. Um, 9th and 4th Division, what they do is attempt this kind of leapfrog manoeuvre, which had never been done. It'd been done with, like, smaller units, but you've, essentially you've got 9th Scottish Division um, who bust through the uh, the German 1st and 2nd uh, trench systems go up to the third system and then fourth division leapfrog through ninth division and press on right the way through. Either they end up gaining three and a half miles. It's the, it's the biggest gain since trench warfare started. Uh, they capture the village of Fompu and the big kind of redoubt, um, just up the top of the hill there, the Hyderabad redoubt or, or the Polenburg, um, as, as the, as the Germans called it. Um, and, and, that's the kind of high water mark, I say, for the 9th of April. So it's a really, really big gain. Um, the, the kind of, you then got the, the river, which kind of separates the, them from the next core down, the river Scarp, which, uh, if you imagine it sort of wiggling off through the battlefield. It kind of does almost like a, a quick right and then left at this point. But 6th Corps, 
get on all right again. They don't make quite the same gains. They don't have any leapfrogging or anything like that, and they find resistance a bit stickier. Um, there's also some of the staff work goes a bit all awry, and some of the troops lose their creeping barrage as well. So things get a little bit stuck. And then then Seven Corps, um, further south still, they're actually, they've got a hell of a task in places because they've had to close up to the Hindenburg Line. So they're attacking the Hindenburg Line. They've got a hill in front of them uh, called Telegraph Hill, um, there's, and that's 14th Division, by the way. That's our that's our guys that we're that we're looking at for for the Great War Group. Um, it, it, this hill was a a pain in the neck, quite frankly. I think they they had to do some pretty serious maths and work out whether this creeping barrage was actually going to take the heads off the soldiers as they as they went over Telegraph Hill. And I think they worked out that the shells would probably miss them by a few feet or so. <laughs> it's been pretty close. <laughs> um, anyway, they end up getting a little bit stuck uh, around um, the kind of top of the Hindenburg, the very northern edge of the Hindenburg line, where there's another redoubt uh, called the Heart. And so it's it's not quite as easy. But on the whole, it's really, really good. You know, as, as far as it's a kind of day to celebrate in the war goes, uh, then the 9th of April for the British is a really strong one. And it's not quite matched up probably until the 8th of August, 1918. So if you take a pause here, if you were to ask Allenby, for instance, how he's feeling on the 10th and 11th, it's he's in a good place, isn't he? he? He is. He's happy. He's doing a bit of a strap. Certainly on the 10th. Yeah, he's writing. He wrote a letter to uh, his wife saying we've had a very big battle. We've had some huge gains. Thousands of Germans uh, taken prisoner. Um, dozens of guns as well. Uh, and it really was. They probably probably captured around about 7000 prisoners on that opening day. Um, yeah, like I said, gain of three and a half miles. Uh, he did take a point to uh, write to his wife and say that their son was safe uh, as well because because um, you know their, their, their 19 year old boy was actually a gunner as well. He's an artillery officer firing uh, as well, but you know he was okay. And so there's nothing to complain about at that stage. Uh, on the 10th, yeah, things slow down significantly. Um, and and on the 11th, you probably got the the last bit of genuinely good news when um, uh, Six Corps, kind of in the middle of the battlefield, just south of the river, uh, actually captured the village of Montchilapru, um, which is a real kind of strategically important site, actually, because it overlooked the Arras-Cambrai Road. And any kind of advance out of that area would, would need the village of, uh, village of Monchy uh, under their control. So it's good stuff. Yeah. And then this is World War One, so it doesn't stay good for long, does it? Um, the wheels start coming off. You've got four key reasons why, but tell us how as well. What went wrong? Okay, so this idea that they could just move up through the gears um, was wrong. Very, very wrong indeed, because essentially... The, if you think back to what the original plan was, what was the original plan? It was to draw German reserves into the area. It, it took worked. a lot of time as well. It took a long <laughs> time to arrange said plan. Yeah, it had. It, it, well, no, that's, that's, that's another big point. Like, essentially, they've taken the time to make this incredibly detailed plan, uh, map out the artillery and get all that stuff sorted. It worked. Brilliant. You know, but it took months. So any kind of, right, you're facing a whole new defensive line. The Germans are steaming reinforcements in. You know, we're talking dozens of trains loaded with fresh soldiers, fresh artillery. They're arriving hourly uh, into the battlefield. Also uh, arriving into the area is their 
probably their best defensive commander, uh, Friedrich von Losberg, who essentially <laughs> takes von Falkenhausen and says, you remember when I explained those plans to you about, you know, how we kind of defend a, a sort of light zone and then we have the kind of main strength held in the rear? Are you actually going to do that now? And, and von Falkenhausen says, yes, I'll, I'll do that now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, and so their techniques get sorted out. Fresh troops come in and the British are necessarily weaker than they had been when they started. Um, you know, they've taken some casualties, you know, not, nothing like the first July and the Somme, uh, of course, but they have taken some and they've been fighting for a few days and, you know, efforts to bring the cavalry through, um, failed, uh, as well. I mean, really the kind of the, the, some of the, some of the, um, commanders uh, in 4th and ninth Division, where they made those big gains and got up to the, the German 5th line, were screaming for the cavalry then. You know, but it has to be, yeah, it, it, what's, what's Maxwell's quote? Yeah, cavalry. Yeah, a thousand times yes, but it has to be now. Okay? They spent the whole tent waiting for the cavalry to turn up. Eventually, on the 11th, it's, oh, the cavalry are here now. Well, great. But, you know, these villages in front of us are now full of Germans with machine guns. So it is too late. They did have a crack on the 11th with cavalry um, uh, to the north of Monchy. Um, when, it, when it was captured, they tried to break through to the north between the, the village and the river. Trouble is, they were observed, came under a lot of shell fire. Some cavalry swerved off to the left and, and, and ran off. Some cavalry swerved right and actually into the village, whereupon the, uh, the Germans dropped this God almighty box barrage uh, on Manchi, and the effect, particularly on the horses, was horrific. And so you've got horrible, horrible images of dead horses in the streets of Manchi, and 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 you know the gutters running with the blood uh, of these horses. A real, real horror show um, because it, it was too slow. It, the time had passed uh, for the cavalry, and and so new plans needed. Um, hey. Uh, they, they, they pressed on, the 14th is when they canned it, is when Haig said no more offensive action. And, and what you have is one kind of final dart out with elements of 29th Division. And this is the Newfoundlanders. Um, so it's day five of the offensive, really. Uh, in front of Monchi uh, to the east was a hill called Infantry Hill. And uh, they thought these two battalions will have a poke at it. First Essex and, and the, the Newfoundland uh, Regiment will have a go at, at trying to capture it. And they totally fell victim to that, that German style of defence, lightly held in the front, and then a big counterattack unit which came and slammed these two battalions and wiped them out. And so that's that's the wheels off. 
Now, Haig didn't want a complete stop, but they had to halt it at that point. A couple of days after that, Haig got the army commanders together, Horn, um, Goff and, uh, and uh, Allenby, and uh, said, look, the French are attacking today, which they were. We need to start making plans to to drive on. And I've got a feeling these these three army commanders probably looked at each other and thought, "Hey, okay, you know, yeah, we've done. Yeah, we, we, we've done. Yeah, exactly. We've we've done our job. It's up to the French now. You remember, punch, punch, punch. They were going to launch those three attacks, which which break through the German lines. Yeah, we, we're going to make plans to attack as well. Let's get ready to go on the twentieth. Okay, so that leaves. These army commanders with three days to plan the next attack. Horn immediately starts saying, whoa, 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 I'm not ready. No, 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 no. Uh, Goff says, I'm not really interested in this until the, until third army's nailed some of the high ground to my left. I don't want to start, you know, charging towards the Hindenburg line again. His fifth army had had a go at the Hindenburg line on the 11th at Vukor, and we can do a whole other podcast on that or three yeah. podcasts on that because that's a whole other show. Um, Even I've heard of that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 essentially they 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 break in to the Hindenburg line, but you know the Australian fourth division that is has the door shut on them from behind, and yeah, so they lose a load of guys. Um, so so Goff's not keen until you know Third Army have done some of the stuff to his left, and um, and Third Army has a lot to do uh, according to Haig's plan. They end up postponing to the twenty third. There's still not a lot of time to make proper plans. I mean, they had months to get ready the first time, didn't they? They did. They had not just months to um, make their plans, but months to get all their guns into position. What what they're faced with now is, because of all that heavy artillery, they've smashed all the roads up around Arras, and now they're being asked to get their guns forward into position to support a new attack a few miles ahead. It's just too hard. They can't get the weight of artillery. And don't forget, the Germans are getting stronger by the day. Uh, facing them, and um, they end up kind of with stronger German defences by by the later stages of April than they had for for the ninth before the attack went in. So there's too there's too much facing them, um, really. On the 23rd, it's not a total total disaster. I mean, you do have 63rd Division uh, up in the north that captured Gavrel, uh, which is all right, but 17th Corps uh, at Ruhr. Um, this is the battle that I did my master's thesis on because it's just attack after attack after attack where they get absolutely nowhere uh, against, you know, there's dozens of German machine guns firing. It's a horrible battlefield to try and attack. You've got a, a railway embankment which then turns into a railway cutting as it moves through Greenland Hill. Uh, you've got wooded areas. You've got a village kind of split across the, the foot of the, the, the hill there, uh, which then drops down into the river valley uh, as well. So you've got dead ground. It's all under observation. Uh, the first crack at it they had um, on the 11th was disastrous and uh, second Seaforth Highlanders were cut to pieces. You've got probably the grimmest feature that I've ever seen on a trench map as a result of that attack. Um, it says line of dead Seaforths. Uh, actually on the trench map as a kind of identifying feature. Um, uh, but it, yeah, it, it's, it's scarcely any better on the 23rd of April. Further off down the south, they do make some inroads into the Hindenburg line, but they make no serious progress. The tanks that they'd had for the earlier stages, a few of them were still running, but Arras isn't, um, I want to say, a high point for the, for the, for the tank, really. It's, uh, they have a few that, that 
have isolated moments of success, but, but actually there's a lot of breakdowns. Uh, there's a lot of instances where the Germans are using armor piercing bullets uh, as well. So it's not friendly tank country uh, at all. Uh, so the 23rd of April, no serious joy. And then five days later, they go again. By this time, it's become clear that Nivelle's offensive really isn't working. Uh, and so um, it, if, the, if the French had stopped attacking, as they had kind of said they would, then this attack on the 28th wouldn't have gone in at Arras either. But the fact that, you know, Nivelle had said, look, we're persevering with this. The French government's behind it. The men are behind it. By the way, they were um then yeah the, the attack on the 28th wouldn't have happened and it's really no good okay it's mostly the northern part of the battlefield that, that, that they attack uh the canadians are back in action uh, actually and so um canadian first division captures Arleur at the uh at the you know the northern end of the battlefield and really that's the only piece of good news that that battle on the 28th of april is consequently known as the battle of Arleur. um yeah, a few instances where second division got to Oppy. Um, there's a couple of little break-ins, but they're not tenable. Uh, and it's a, it's a story of tired men going up against strong defences at this point. And I'd love to say that was the end of the battle, but it wasn't. Just just out of interest, what is the depth of the advance? How how far did they get? Uh, are we talking on one just of these just, occasions just just sort of from from day one on on the ninth through to where we are now how how, how far have they gone um there's hardly any when we get to the kind of when Haig takes his eye off arras altogether um after the third of may that's when you get local commanders actually thinking right what do i need to do to capture your to improve my tactical situation okay and there's a little bit of an advance from that but actually from kind of you know the 11th of april and the capture of monchi which is an advance of yeah about three and a half four miles or so there's scarcely any um down in the south where the gains have been smaller earlier on they do expand on those gains a little bit but, you know, we're talking a mile or two and we're not talking huge, huge gains. So really that high watermark of, of sort of three and a half to four miles doesn't really get expanded on in the in the fighting that follows. You've mentioned the third of May. It's not a good day, is it? It's really bad. I think this is. Uh, I, 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 Do you I, think this that you've said to me before, this might be the worst day on the Western Front? Yeah, Wow. It's not. In terms of sheer casualties, it doesn't eclipse the first day on the Somme. doesn't quite get close to it, really. It's actually quite difficult to know precisely how many casualties, because it all, all these units report their casualties different, differently. But we're probably talking about 20,000 or so British casualties. It's more the point that they should have known better. It's a total balls up from start to finish in terms of planning. And it's really rare that you get errors <clears throat> on this scale made by the BEF, okay? And, and, and I say that, I'm fully aware of some pretty howling errors, but, you know, by the middle of 1917, we should be doing a whole lot better. Firstly, he's still got his three army commanders. Haig, essentially, is focused on Flanders at this time. He wants to transfer the full attacking weight um, further north to, to, you know, the area around Ypres, where he kind of always wanted to be fighting anyway. Um, and his deal with Nivelle was that, after Arras, we're going north. Um, to this end, he couldn't really give um, the generals around Arras any fresh divisions. Okay, he did end up giving them uh, a couple. 18th Division comes into the line and um, and uh, one or two others. 
Uh, but 18th division is probably the highest rated British division uh, around this time. And so, yeah, what gets wrong? You've got three commanders, each with very different grounds in front of them. You've got Goff with, I mean, aside from a railway embankment, which he's going to have to cross anyway, he's got pancake flat ground uh, in front of him, in front of the Hindenburg line. He needs to attack in darkness. If he attacks in daylight, his troops will be minced. Okay. Further north, on first and third armies fronts, they've got a whole load of broken ground. It's what I was talking about just then with the kind of hills and the railway embankment and the railway cutting and the river and the wooded areas and villages all heavily fortified. You need daylight <laughs> to cross these. And so trying to find a start time for this offensive. Now, you know, kind of logic would dictate you don't have one uniform start time. You can send some off in the darkness and, and some off in the light. Hey, didn't want that. He wanted a uniform start time. So you got Goff going loggerheads with um, Allenby and Horn, um, who you know if each want daylight or darkness, depending on what works for them. They end up going with a compromise time, which suits absolutely no one. Um, sunrise, proper sunrise. Well, how technical do you want? Five twenty-two a.m. is proper sunrise. But actually, the first crack of lights is just after four o'clock. All right. So you can you can start seeing people about five past four. Uh, and that's what first and third armies wanted. The first hint of daylight so they can actually see where they're going. That's when they go. Fifth army wanted three thirty. OK, they wanted pitch black for at least half an hour um, so that they get stuck in. They went with three forty five. <laughs> OK, now, why is that bad? Well, firstly, when first and third army set off, they can't see anything. So they've got, they've got, you know, 20 minutes or so of bimbling around in the dark, presumably with the Germans knowing that something's up and able to do something about it. As it happens, the Germans had seen the uh, preparation anyway and so knew that something was up. So even before the attack went in, um, the British front line was deluged with high explosive and poison gas. OK, and this just breaks everything up, causes total com- confusion to make matters worse. The moon was doing a thing as well. The moon was setting um, just behind the, the British lines. Um, so while they were forming up in no man's land, they're perfectly silhouetted by the moonlight. The Germans are in the total darkness. The Germans can see all these soldiers forming up in front of them. They knew they were coming anyway. And so they're then hammered with machine gun small arms fire on top of the artillery, which is already dropping on them anyway. Um, Fake. <laughs> it's, it, it's total, total disaster. Um, there's and even these fresh units that come in actually do make some make a little bit of ground in in the face of all of this. So 18th Division do get into Cherizy, but um, then you know in the confusion, someone reportedly shouted out "retire," uh, and so there's a whole load of falling back before officers grab them and said, "You know, no one actually said retire." It could have been a German shouting "retire," um, which then the men. Uh, heard. Um, further north, uh, again, the Canadians do make some ground. They've, they've fairly recently reinforced uh, the Canadian Corps, so a brigade each from 1st and 2nd Canadian Divisions capture the, uh, the, the village of Frenois. Um, and that's all the good news. Really, it's just miserable. 4th Division are already weakened, but they take 2,000 casualties and get absolutely nowhere. Um, it's elements of 9th Division uh, in the darkness, they, they were supposed to execute this kind of right wheel manoeuvre, but they wheeled too far. 
Uh, and so when they when the kind of actually the, a bit of daylight appeared in front of them, they see a trench line. They open fire on it and start advancing towards it. It's the British front line. <laughs> it's it's a total total calamity from start to finish. Uh, the third of May, and it's awful. Uh, and for that Shock reason, others do the Western Front, isn't it? Yeah, it could hardly have gone worse. Genuinely. Um, but that's that's when Haig uh, decides enough's enough as, as far as he's concerned. Uh, he orders no more major offences. Um, and actually, kind of with the, the army commanders going quiet as well, the local commander, the divisional commanders and the corps commanders get to look at their little bits of front and say, look, what can we do to improve our tactical position? And actually, there's some quite skilled attacks that go in after that. So, so 4th Division, which took 2,000 casualties on the 3rd of May, uh, a, a week or so later, launches this attack on Ruhr. And it's good. Like, they, they, there's lots to like about it. Firstly, you know, they do things like cut cubby holes in the trenches so they can just stash men, basically. They hide them away uh, at night. Um, they bring a whole load of extra Lewis guns into the line just in case an, an enemy plane does fly over. They can give them the good news. Um, they arrange uh, a barrage with. Uh, the division on the other side of the river as well, 12th Division. Uh, and this time, 12th Division is going to use a load of smoke on their front. So, bah, 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 bah. They fire off a load of artillery, uh, drop a bombardment. There's no infantry attack there, but in the smoke, um, that's where the Germans think, Germans think the attack's coming. So, the, the artillery bombardment that the Germans drop um, is, is over there. They, they ignore the 4th Division. Um, they attacked in the evening as well, which was unexpected. And also, you know, Cut out the uh, the German opportunity for counterattacks. Um, they do they do lots right when the kind of army commanders leave them alone. So these are small gains, and and this is this is sticking plaster for what it had turned into a real a real nightmare. Um, it, it, success on the first day, success on the first few days. Hang but on, actually, a second, inter- let me go back because I'll do the I'll ask you for the net result. So, Lockie, what is the net result of the Arras offensives? Okay, so first thing to say is it worked. <laughs> you know, their, their, their plan to draw Germans in, they achieved their objectives in that. However, in term, in ter- when they tried to restart this offensive, um, we ended up with uh, the highest rate of death per day of any British offensive. And that includes the Somme, it includes Passchendaele. The only one that kind of gets anywhere near it really is the the 100 days uh, offensive, uh, the end of the war. But we end up with over 4,000 casualties a day at Arras. Um, These these kind of efforts to restart on quite a large level. If you think about what the kind of like the middle stages of the Somme or, or, you know, kind of fighting in August where it's like small scale penny packet uh, attacks. One thing about that is the casualties aren't epic. Okay. Whereas if you try and load up a big kind of seven or eight division attack in just a few days, send them out, you can end up with 12, 15,000 casualties in a day and gaining absolutely nothing. And that's, that's what we had in those later stages at, at Arras. So about 145,000 casualties uh, in the course of a 39-day offensive. It's pretty epic. What about the Germans, Lockie? German loss is not as high. Um, you, you won't be shocked to hear. Um, again, quite difficult to know exactly, but I think it's around about 80,000 
uh, they take. Um, they do lose quite a few in their in their counter attacks, uh, but also going through the cages. Um, there's about twenty thousand or so prisoners taken, um, mostly in those early stages, uh, of course. But um, it's an attack which it showed progress, showed the pro- showed some of the progress that the British had made, but it also exposed some failings. Yes, okay, they could plan a big offensive action, um, one that would smash up a German defensive line. Didn't really matter what the Germans uh, put in front of this. Uh, given enough time and enough artillery, the British can smash it to bits. Okay, so in that sense, it, it's, a, it's an interesting battle because it, it's, it sets us another step down the road to restoring movement to the battlefield. You know, the Germans are going to hold a position in strength. The British can batter it to bits and capture it. It's a question of what they then do about German counterattacks and things like that. The logical step is you move to something like what Second Army did uh, in September of 1917 when they go for their bite and hold, quite small advances uh, designed to draw the Germans into costly counterattacks. So it's, it's a step on the road to that as well. So let's get back to our friend Navelle. What's oh. this whole strategy pointless? Is the basis for my nation's pride actually a complete waste of time? No, it's not a waste of time at all. I don't think this is the most impressive Canadian fighting on the Western Front, actually. Yeah, you know, I think if you look at their actions in 1918, these are stunning. Yeah. Um, but it's a big moment. Certainly, you know, getting them together and it ends up with, you know, being the core commander ends up getting promoted to take on third army because <laughs> Nivelle gets canned. You, you won't be surprised to, to hear, but also kind of third army, British third army's commander, Allenby, uh, who masterminded the offensive and then rather lost control of it. Um, he was canned as well and actually did all right in, in the Middle East later on. That's another podcast too. Um, so no, there's a lot to return quite a lot of times. <laughs> Lockheed does a series on World War One. Get get Tangy Gareth in for Palestine. He he, he likes it there. Um, yeah, so it's uh, no, there's plenty to be proud of um, from from all of these units. I think you know all of these units kind of have their moments um, uh, in this in this attack. So fourth uh, and ninth division individually do well at different times. The Canadians consistently seem to do uh, well. I mean, that the last village that they captured, Frenois, was actually lost then by a British division, fifth division, which is a shame. But you know, more more heavy fighting kind of followed. Twelfth um, division end up being kind of one of the kind of benchmark units for for tactical progress. Eighteenth division. Maybe they're never quite the same uh, again after their Somme uh, fighting and losing Maxi as a commander, but they still perform creditably as well. So there's a lot of loss, but there's a lot of creditable fighting. The French attacks, um, again, if we kind of compare them to the Somme the previous year, they're not too bad. Trouble is, for the French, this was not the first major assault as it as it kind of was on that scale for the BEF in 1916. They'd been fighting hard 1914, 1915, 1916, and now 1917. Each year with the promise of on les aura, we'll get them this time. And each time not quite doing it. And so I can imagine after four years of this or into the well into the fourth year of it, French soldiers being fed up and they proved it by mutinying on a large scale not in the sense that you know they stabbed their officers and went off home but um they said you know we're just a bit sick of 
charging off out of our trenches to get shot again. You know, you don't even clean us properly. Exactly. Yeah, we want a bit of food, a bit of leave, and we like someone who kind of thinks about us a little bit instead of just thinking about their own personal glory and what they have to gain from us. And they got it as well. They did get that as 1917 went on, didn't they? Yeah, they did. By July, they're able to sort of get on the on the front foot again and 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 launch some limited offensives. They did take part in the um, in the Third Ypres campaign. Uh, as well, the French, and and by 1918, um, they have a few horror stories on the defensive, but um, but actually the kind of main impetus for the um, for the for the counterattack, which turns into the the Hundred Days Offensive, that's that's a French uh, thing, the Second Marne. So they come good as well. That's utterly fascinating for, for for me to understand the sort of wider context of it because we have a very narrow viewpoint when it comes to this battle in canada it's that first day it's that big victory it's us waving a flag that we don't have anymore um and and that's very reassuring to know that you know we we didn't do this thing alone there was this sort of grand effort with the british to to achieve as much as they did, because it is it is a big success during a period when there wasn't a hell of a lot to write home about. So we thank you very much, Lockie. You're welcome back any time. Well, to be fair, in a few you, hours, possibly. you can be back in a few <laughs> hours as well. So thank you very much for joining us, Alex. It's always a pleasure to share a show with you. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack, and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year, and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you, and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you, and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.